Well, it's great to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Sorry, I can't be with you in person as doing it together, but uh, still, it's great to meet together. Um, perhaps as uh, we're about to start, if you want to either uh, get your Bibles and turn to Mark 13 or get it up on a screen, um, three good reasons why it's good to have this passage open before you today from Mark 13. Uh, firstly, it's always good to have the Bible open so you can, uh, as it's being taught, so you can check that what the minister or preacher is saying is in accord with what's written in God's word. Secondly, because today I'm a visiting preacher, so doubly important that you have your Bibles open. Who knows what I'm going to say? Uh, so you need to check that what I'm saying is right. And thirdly, because particularly today, as we're looking at Mark chapter 13, this is not the most straightforward of passages. And uh, in fact, not only is it the most straightforward, the Bible-believing Christians have different ways of understanding or interpreting uh, this chapter. And I think the way that I'm going to be suggesting uh, that we interpret it is probably not the most common way. So you may want to really be checking, uh, wait, is that really right? Uh, did what he just say there? Is that really what's in the passage? So uh, do get your Bibles open. Uh, hopefully, if we're ready, then uh, we can begin. Do turn to, to Mark 13. Uh, not long ago, uh, my younger son and I uh, went to do the stadium tour of Liverpool. It was not of Anfield. It was not long after the new stadium, the new uh, stand had been put in. Uh, we had a look around the, the new stand, really impressed by it. Uh, of course, you see the carp and the, the, the museum and so on. Uh, imagine after we'd done that, as we came out, somebody had come up to us and said, well, what do you think of the, uh, of the stadium, lads? And we said, oh, yeah, magnificent, magnificent building. If he then said to us, do you know what, in your lifetime, it's going to be completely destroyed. In your lifetime, there's going to be nothing left. Every uh, stone of that building is going to fall down and Anfield is going to be reduced to rubble and Liverpool will never play again. Imagine that. Uh, I guess one half of the city uh, will be made up. Uh, best news they've heard since Steve Gerrard slipped over against Chelsea. But for the rest, it would be devastating. And, and in fact, for some, it would almost seem like, oh, well, that's the end of my life. What's the point of life? If there's no more Liverpool, what, what are we going to do? Well, in Mark 13, uh, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples when they see the temple. And uh, they look at the temple and, and the disciples say, what a magnificent building. And Jesus says in these shocking words, actually, uh, that this temple is going to be reduced to rubble. There'll be a day when there's not one stone left. And in fact, it's going to happen in your lifetime. That's even more stunning for the disciples than it would be about Anfield. The, the temple had stood, or there'd been a temple in Jerusalem for over a thousand years. And not only that, but the temple was absolutely vital for God's people to have a relationship with God because it was the temple was the place where they could meet with God. The temple was the place where sacrifices for sins were made. If, if, you, if you do it with the temple, how is that going to be taken care of? It was utterly devastating. And as Jesus says this uh, to them, the disciples are, are shocked and, and they ask him, uh, these questions saying well when will it be and and what will be the signs of it uh, and so the whole chapter is dealing with those questions uh, and, and I want to suggest that as we look at Mark 13 there's two things that we can all agree on uh, firstly Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and that did indeed happen in the lifetime of those listening it happened in AD 70 uh, and secondly he's talking about his return at the end of the age and uh, everybody, I think, as they read Mark 13, would agree on that. The difference of opinion comes as to when we think he's talking about the temple and when we think he's talking about his return at the end of the age. Uh, and I, right at the beginning, I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table. I think that from verses 
5 through to 31, Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in AD 70. Uh, but then from verses 32 to 37, he's speaking about his return. I say that's probably not the most common way of understanding Mark 13. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. You may well take a different view, and, uh, that, and that's great. If we were here in the f together, we could uh, chat about this over coffee. But um, I'm going to say why I think that, and you can see what you make of it as we go through. Um, the chapter begins with Jesus and his disciples. As they leave the temple, they say, look, what an amazing building. Jesus says to them in verse 2, oh, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And this so shocks the disciples, they say to him, Paul, when will these things happen? And, and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Note firstly, the, the first thing they say, when will these things happen? What things? Well, obviously the things he's just been talking about, the destruction of the temple. And then look further down the chapter to verse 30, where Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And the most straightforward reading of that is all these things means the destruction of the temple. And Jesus is saying that will take place within the lifetime of this generation. Jesus expects that all the things he's been talking about will take place during this present generation. And Jesus is absolutely right. In AD 70, the Romans came and they, they ransacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt since. And, and Jesus wants to emphasize how trustworthy what he's saying is, because in the next verse, in verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But my words are utterly true. You can stake your life on what I'm telling you here. But they also ask, and what will be the sign that they're all, all about to be fulfilled? Now, in Matthew's gospel and his account of this conversation, we get a little bit more detail. Matthew says, they asked Jesus, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I think that's helpful because what we see there, I think, is what is implied in Mark 13 that the disciples assumed three things would go together. If the temple's going to be destroyed, it does mean the end of the age. How could life continue without the temple? And it must mean the establishing of the kingdom of God in all its fullness, the coming of the Lord Jesus in great power to establish his kingdom. So I think the sense of their question is, what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? What is the all? It's the destruction of the temple. It's the return of Christ. And it's the day of judgment when God's kingdom will be fully established. And so firstly, what we see then is Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple from verse 5 through to verse 31. And then notice there's a real change in verse 32. He's been talking about the destruction of the temple, but then there's a change of topic in verse 32. But about that day or hour, what day or hour? Well, the day when Jesus will come in great power, returning to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom. So, verses 5 to 31, Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple. Let's look at that first of all. Uh, he tells them what life is going to be like leading up to the destruction of the temple and through that time. 
It's going to be a time when there'll be false Christs claiming to be Jesus. There'll be wars and rumours of wars. There'll be earthquakes and famines. And the disciples, well, they're going to face opposition and persecution. Verse 9, he says, you're going to be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. They're going to be arrested and put on trial. But in the midst of all that, of all that opposition and, and upheaval and turmoil, the gospel will be proclaimed. And not just in Jerusalem or even in just Judea, but Samaria and indeed to the ends of the earth. Mark uh, 13 verse 10, Jesus says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And then in verses 14 to 23, Jesus speaks of the actual time of the destruction and just how terrible it will be. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Um, there's a kind of irony there because if ever there was a passage that many readers struggle to understand, it's exactly that one. Uh, but what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's quoting from Daniel and the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, that speaks of one who will set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple abolishing sacrifices and desecrating the temple. And Jesus is saying, look, you need to understand that's referring to what the Romans are going to come and do. They're going to besiege the city and destroy the temple and uh, desecrate it. And this time will be so bad. He says, pray it's not in winter uh, when it comes. Verse 14, those who are in Judea should flee to the hills, get out, escape. One church writer says, when the Romans fell upon Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem left the city and moved to a town called Pella. They took Jesus' advice. They indeed fled. They got out. And again, the warnings in verses 21 to 23. Watch out, says Jesus. Watch out for false messiahs and false prophets trying to deceive you and lead you astray. So be on your guard. Verse 23. Be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. That's really important. Why is he drawing attention to the fact he's telling these things in advance. Well, so that when they happen, they remember, oh no, Jesus said this. This is exactly as Jesus said it would be. And we can trust him. We can always trust his word. And, and if he can tell us what's going to happen, we also know that he's in control of these things. And we can keep trusting him through this time of tribulation. Let me suggest that you could map verses 4 to 13 onto the book of Acts. In Acts, we have recorded there famine and earthquakes. Acts tells us how the disciples were thrown out of synagogues and they were flogged and they were put on trial. Acts tells us how when they were put on trial, time and again they were filled with the Holy Spirit, so they spoke with great boldness and power, just as Jesus promised them they would in verse 11. Just say whatever is given you at the time, it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. It's going to be okay. Through this trial, God will be with you and his spirit will enable you to speak my word. And in Acts, we indeed see the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. We see it moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and all the way as Acts finish is with Paul in Rome, boldly proclaiming the gospel. So then we come to the section in verses 24 to 27. And here particularly, we may want to, um, you may find what I'm saying not convincing, but I'll say what I think and, and you, we can, uh, we, we can, you can think about it. Many assume here, I think, that Jesus is referring to the second coming and we can see why. But for me, the problem with that 
Is it still part of what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened? So I think Jesus is still referring to what will happen in the lifetime of those listening to him. Let me explain why. Verse 24 indeed sounds as though it might be referring to the second coming, but actually Jesus once again is quoting from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10, which speaks of God's judgment upon Babylon. In Isaiah 34 verse 4, referring to God's judgment upon Edom. It's typical biblical language to refer to the great cataclysmic events, uh, in particular of God's judgment, and how what a tremendous upheaval that is. And if his judgment upon Babylon and Eden caused such upheaval, how much more is this coming judgment falling upon Israel and Jerusalem because she's rejected Jesus, her Messiah? It sounds like the second coming, why? Well, because it is actually a foretaste, a shadowing of what it will be like when Jesus comes finally to bring judgment upon the whole earth when he returns. And then again, verse 26, the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I think many read and assume, well, this is referring to Jesus coming on the clouds to earth, returning to judge. But in fact, Jesus once again is quoting from the Old Testament. And again, from the book of Daniel, this is taken directly from Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel tells us in his vision, he saw the ancient of days, which is uh, Daniel depicting for us God, uh, the living God and his throne room in heaven. And uh, then he says in Daniel seven, verse 13, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, coming that is not to earth, but coming to God, coming into the presence of God. And as he was led into his presence, what happened? Well, Daniel 7 verse 14 says, this figure, this son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man, which is Jesus. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds to God, where he received all authority in heaven and on earth and began to reign and began the establishing of his kingdom that will spread and will not uh, pass away. When Jesus died and rose again and then ascended to the Father's right hand on high, he came to the Father to receive all power and authority in heaven and on earth and then began his work, his great work of spreading his kingdom on earth through the proclamation of his gospel. That's what he's doing at the end of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, go make disciples of all the nations. So this is what Jesus is speaking of here. And what happens as a consequence of his receiving all authority? Well, then verse 27, he then sends his angels to gather his elect from the ends of the earth. That's very similar to what we read in Matthew 28. That is, the gospel now goes to all the nations, to every corner of the world, to bring in God's people as they hear and respond to, repent and believe, and put their trust in Jesus Christ and his death for them on the cross. So, judgment is coming. 
There's terrible destruction, upheaval. There'll be false prophets and false messiahs. And the gospel will spread. And this whole time will be characterised by war and earthquake, famine and upheaval and turmoil. A world that's not as it should be. And the reason that that sounds just like our day is because it is. It is just like our day. That this is the nature of life in this fallen world from Jesus' death and resurrection to the destruction of the temple and all the way on until the end of time when Jesus returns. And during this time, Jesus gives clear commands to his disciples uh, as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In the midst of opposition and conflict, Jesus gives his disciples these vital commands. Watch out that you're not deceived by false prophets and messiahs. Be on your guard. Don't be surprised that you face opposition. If they hated me, well, they'll hate you. If they crucified me, how are they going to treat you? But here's what's really important, Jesus says. Stand firm. Endure. Keep on keeping on, for the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so then verse 32 begins this new, sex, uh, new section. But, he says, now about that day, or hour, which day, or hour, well, the day when the Son of Man will return as judge, uh, the great and awesome day of the Lord, the one thing he tells us that we know about when that will be is we don't know when it will be. Uh, which is really important. The one thing we can con be confident about is that whenever somebody claims to know when it is going to be, they're wrong and they don't know. They may happen to be right just by, if everybody keeps predicting some different date, eventually someone's going to uh, land on the right day, but they don't know that because nobody knows, Jesus says. And so here's the thing, because we don't know, Jesus gives this command. So be on your guard, be alert. Live as though this day could be the day because nobody knows when it will be. Verse 35, keep watch. And note also the way in which in verse 37, this now has a wider application than just to the disciples he's talking to. He says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Well, what does all that have to say to us? What does it mean for us? Well, that Jesus will return. We can be absolutely sure of this. You see, this is, again, why this passage is so important, because Jesus says, look, the temple is going to be destroyed. And to the disciples, that's unthinkable. But he was absolutely right. And this is going to happen in, in the lifetime of this generation. And he was absolutely right. AD 70. And it's never been rebuilt. And so when he says he will return and bring the kingdom of God in all its fullness and bring in the full and final salvation that we're waiting for, the end to sin and suffering and death, salvation for all those who put their trust in him, but also bringing then his full and final judgment, we can be just as sure that that promise is also true. And there's hints in this, these verses made clear in other parts of the Bible, that the reason why this is delayed, the reason why so far we're waiting 2,000 years, is because of verse 27. That is the ongoing work of gathering his people from all over the world as the gospel is proclaimed. He holds back this coming day so that people might be saved, that people might be rescued from this coming judgment by turning to Christ 
and putting their trust in him now while there is still time. I was saying to Morris when he was asking me questions about how I became a Christian, I was mentioning how this friend invited me to church and for a while I kept saying no. I am so glad that Jesus didn't return between the first time I was asked and the last time when I said yes I'm going. Because why? I wasn't ready. And Jesus is holding back because he longs for people to repent and come to him. The danger, which is what Jesus is warning of here, is we don't really believe his return is really going to happen, or that it could happen at any time. And that's the point of verse 32. About that day or hour, no one knows, so be on your guard, be alert, live every day as though you're ready. Well, it may be for some of you uh, watching this, this might be God's word for you today. Maybe you're thinking about the Christian faith, exploring it. Maybe you've been tuning in to watch some of these services online. Here's what all this means. Jesus is, is going to return. He wants you to know that. But he also longs that you're ready. And he urges you that you, are, uh, that you now put your trust in him. And don't make the mistake of thinking either it's never going to happen or it's not going to happen anytime soon. So it's not important. I've got more pressing things to worry about or think about. What this is saying to us is be ready because if he was to return today, would you be ready and how would he find you? Until he returns, he's at work gathering his people to himself. And maybe that this day is your day. This is the day he speaks to you and says, Today's the day you should come. Come to me now. Put your trust in me. You might receive my full salvation. But maybe you've already done that. For those of us uh, who profess to be Christians, just again notice the, the commands Jesus is giving because the commands in this whole section are really the same thing. In the light of all that's happening, here's what you should do. Be on your guard. Be alert. Keep watch. Verse 35 and 36, if you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, you, you should stay alert at all times. In case he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. Well, we need to watch out, firstly as Christians, as Jesus warns his disciples, not to be deceived. Those coming in the name of Christ, false prophets, false messiahs, uh, bringing messages they claim to be from God that aren't. And how can we avoid being deceived? Well, Jesus says, because Every word I say is true and trustworthy. Hold fast to my word. Don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Check and test everything with my word and cling and hold fast to me. But secondly, and this again might be a word for some of us, to, to use Jesus' picture here. Uh, we're in the house. You are a Christian. You do belong to Jesus. But over time, perhaps, maybe you've started to grow a bit sleepy bit drowsy, may even have fallen asleep. You're no longer alert, as it were, switched on, vigilant. It's a danger for us after we've been a Christian for a while. When you, when you first become a Christian, it, it's so amazing, the transformation of coming to know the Lord Jesus, to understand that he's died for you, that he loves you, to have sins forgiven, to know the presence of the Spirit dwelling within us, and, and the wonder of joining a new community of people who love Christ and who are so warm and welcoming, and, and then like a sponge to be having the Bible opened up and discover almost every week a wonderful, stunning new truths from God's Word as we read it ourselves. It's, it's, we're so alive and we're so excited and so enthralled by it, but after we've been doing it for a while, 
sometimes almost without us noticing, we, we can kind of begin to kind of calm down a bit and kind of get used to things and stop being quite as switched on as we were. And we can find ourselves, our hearts growing a little bit colder and not quite as excited. And things become a bit more habit and routine. And we're maybe still doing all the things we used to do, but, but we're not doing them the same zeal. Or maybe we've become a little bit more complacent with things in our life that, that aren't right, but we've just kind of learned to live with them. And the battle against sin sometimes is a, is a hard battle and we get a bit discouraged and we, we stop trying and we, we kind of settle for a lower level of Christian living than the Bible calls us to. Well, Jesus is saying, watch out for that. Keep alert. Keep vigilant. Are you as committed now as you once were? Do you love me as much as you did when you first came to know me? In fact, do you, do you love me more? That's what Jesus is concerned about. Do, do you love me? Is that love growing? Are you awake? Are you living for me wholeheartedly in this life? Are you working with me the task that's been assigned to you that we're, we're all waiting for the return of Christ and whilst we're waiting, we're about his work of trying to proclaim this gospel to others? He says... If you don't believe I'm coming, you'll start to switch off to that and you'll start to fall asleep and become a bit complacent and half-hearted in your Christian life. And that's why this chapter is so important, because he tells us, look, I told you Jerusalem would be destroyed. It was. I tell you I'm coming again and I will. And you don't know when. So what's the right thing to do is to live today as though it might be today. That when I return, I'll find you ready, alert, still committed to my work, not drowsy and not asleep, but alert, living wholeheartedly for me. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it, if that's how he finds us. So let me close now by praying for you and for me that this might be uh, exactly how we're living uh, in the light of Christ's return now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for uh, these, uh, all that Jesus promised and spoke about in this chapter. Uh, we pray particularly you'd grant us clarity where we're, we're not quite clear on things. But what is clear is that the Lord Jesus will return and that that might come at any time. And the way we are to live now is to live in the light of that certainty, alert and vigilant and on guard. And we pray by your grace you might enable us to do that. Wake us up if we've, if we've fallen asleep or become uh, routine and half-hearted in our walk with you. And grant us grace to remain steadfast, to run the race uh, and to stay faithful and vigilant until you return or till we go to be with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.